Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to talk about the UK's global tariff, which the British government announced on May 19th. These are the tariffs that the UK will apply to every country it doesn't have a special trade deal with. And so from January 1st, 2021, when its transition period with the EU ends, the plan is that these are the tariffs that foreign exporters would have to face in order to sell into the UK's market. Now, for some people, coming up with a whole new tariff schedule would be a massive hassle. For us at Trade Talks, this announcement was like the equivalent of Eurovision and the Super Bowl all rolled into one. And to help us tell the story of how we got here, we're going to be joined by some special guests. So hello, my name is James Kane. I'm an associate at the Institute for Government, which is a think tank that aims to improve the effectiveness of government. And before I joined the Institute a few months ago, I was in the Trade Secretariat in the Cabinet Office as a civil servant. My name is Janice McGregor. I'm a senior reporter with the Parliamentary Bureau of CBC News in Ottawa. And one of my beats is covering international trade. So I have been watching the evolution of Canada's trade relationship, first with the European Union, and now with a newly independent Britain for some time now. And it's been quite a ride. So I'm Julia Manton-Garrett. I'm a research officer at the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Okay, quick recap of Brexit for anyone who may have been distracted by some other things. On January 31st, Britain left the European Union. Now, I may not be an EU citizen anymore, but for the practical purposes of trade policy, the UK is basically still in the EU. From January 2021, though, the the plan is that the UK will be properly out, properly unshackled, um, and then it will be able to set its own tariffs. And so here we're talking about the global tariffs, so so on a a most favoured nation basis. These are the tariffs that the UK will apply to everyone it doesn't have a trade deal with. And, And obviously at this point, we don't yet know who that will include. It it could include the EU, it it could not. So there's some uncertainty about who exactly these tariffs will apply to. Let's start with some quick Tariff Theory 101. There is a political economy literature, research literature out there basically describing uh, tariff setting as a process of what economists call protection for sale. So think of companies out there that lobby for tariffs. So they give campaign contributions, say, the idea being that they're trying to shut out some of their foreign competition. Now here, it could be that the UK just has a different balance of defensive interests for some of their industries than the EU does, and maybe in some instances doesn't want the the higher EU tariffs that it would otherwise get. Or it could be that there's some industry lobbying going on that they actually want lower tariffs. Maybe they want lower tariffs for cheaper components, products that the UK doesn't actually make. And obviously, consumers could benefit from from lower tariffs and, and, and prices on things too. And for a country that, that's thinking ahead and looking forward to future negotiations, you might set some high tariffs today so that you have something to bargain away in the future with, with future trading partners as a, as a point of negotiating leverage. 
I guess on a, on a less forward-looking basis, you might also be worried about just handing out uh, zero tariffs because that might undermine trade preferences that you've already given in, in past trade deals. So moving on to the real world, things can get even more complicated than, than the theory. Uh, the UK has to decide on two sets of tariffs. It has to decide its tariff commitments at the World Trade Organization, so it's bound tariffs. Um, and then it has to decide the tariffs it's actually going to apply, and those can be lower. And, and the UK actually announced its bound tariffs already. It announced them two years ago, in fact. And on those bound tariffs, it turns out that apart from some tariff rate quotas for, for agriculture, the UK pretty much did a copy and paste of the European Union's external tariff. Here's James Kane explaining why. The position that the government was adopting at the time was that the creation of a new UK tariff schedule was what they called a technical rectification. So what the government wanted to avoid was a modification of the UK's schedule that would require full negotiation with other WTO members. And so by keeping everything exactly the same, it made it more plausible that it was just a, a sort of technical edit like countries sometimes do when they change their currency. Okay, so... It looks like here, when, when setting the UK's tariff commitments at, at the WTO, it basically wanted to avoid a negotiation, and um, fair enough. So, so Chad just said that the UK did have to change some tariff rate quotas. Essentially, those had been set for the whole EU, and they needed to be adjusted down so that the amounts set in the quota matched the size of the UK market. Um, and, and even just sorting out those has been a complete nightmare. It still hasn't been agreed at, at the WTO because of objections from other members. But overall, these these bound tariffs are important for at least a couple of reasons. For one, they give importers and exporters certainty that these are going to be the, the maximal tariffs, that any applied tariffs won't rise above those particular rates. And that's nice for, for folks that might need to make investments to know about how big the market's going to be in the future. And they're also the, the tariffs that the UK would negotiate over if there were another one of these WTO rounds of, of tariff cutting negotiations. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to hold my breath for that for that. Um, okay, so so that's the the bound tariffs. But now let's move on to the more interesting policy change here, um, which relates to the tariffs that the UK is actually going to apply. And, and the announcement on May 19th was not the first time the UK government had tried to, to set these out. The first announcement was in February of 2019, just before the government was threatening to crash out of the EU uh, with, without a deal. And those no-deal tariffs were only ever supposed to be temporary, and so sort of an emergency schedule, which would have applied for just one year while the government was working out what was going on, it would have applied to pretty much everyone, including the EU. Here's Julia on what that schedule looked like. The UK's no-deal tariffs, they were a pretty big shift away from the EU's external tariff. In fact, under the no-deal tariffs, that would have meant that about 95% of all of UK's tariff lines would have been zero. That compares to around 26% of tariff lines under the EU's tariff structure. And although some tariffs remained on things like meat products and textiles and cars, even there, the tariffs were reduced compared to the original levels. So the no-deal tariffs would have been a substantial liberalisation of the UK's tariffs. Now, to understand why the government did this, you really need to remember just how disruptive people were worried that a no-deal Brexit would be. Here's James. 
So when we were when we were developing the schedule, when the schedule was being developed back in 2018 and early 2019, the fear was that the UK would be crashing out of the EU very shortly, that you would be left with a complete legal vacuum in effect. The, the UK would be out of the EU, but it would have no ties whatsoever with the EU not even the withdrawal agreement. This would have very significant economic repercussions. There would be massive disruption to supply chains as UK hauliers couldn't get access to, to the continent. And also a lot of institutions like the Bank of England and banks generally were predicting very sharp falls in sterling. And this already created a very serious risk of inflation to which it would hardly be desirable for the government to add by installing new tariffs and so driving up prices in the UK. It will surprise no one to learn that there are some sensitive agricultural interests in the UK. I think British farmers are as unexcited about foreign competition as farmers anywhere. But in this case, it seems that other interests were more important. So the UK imports a very large proportion of all the food it consumes from the EU, about 40%. And EU agricultural tariffs, the tariffs that were found in the UK's bound schedule because it was just a copy of the EU's tariffs, are extremely high. You've got some tariffs on products like beef that are well above 60%. So if you take a combination of importing a lot of food from the EU and very high tariff rates, you've got the risk of driving up prices very significantly on food. And food, of course, is particularly sensitive because it has really significant distributional consequences, given that the top decile of the population spends about 10% of their income on food, while the bottom decile spends about 30% of their income on food. One other quick note on the the process here at the time, which was that these no-deal tariffs, were, they were just simply announced. There was no formal consultation with the public on those. Yeah. Hmm. Um, now, th- there was a debate going on within the government, obviously. Um, and my understanding is that, that some were arguing at the time that actually, no, this no-deal tariff schedule should be higher. Um, if they announced uh, higher tariffs, and that might actually give the UK um, leverage and convince the EU to make crucial concessions. Obviously, those those arguments did not win the day. And so we got the no-deal tariff schedule that we did. So the government publishes these no-deal tariffs, which which are pretty low, and that then generated some problems. At the time, the UK was having informal discussions with other trading partners, like Canada, and trying to replicate the trade deal that Canada already had with the EU. Here's Janice McGregor, who was watching everything from from Ottawa at the time, on how the Canadian government reacted. Well, when I wrote about that, I characterized it as stop the bus, (laughs) because they had been in these informal talks about rolling over CETA, their trade deal with the European Union, to have most of it continue to apply to the UK. But then, when the rest of the world was going to have this really sweet low-tariff deal with the UK, they thought, why would we continue? continue the concessions that we offered Europe under these circumstances. What's in it for us? We can we can get low tariffs, no tariffs for free. We don't have to be giving up any concessions. So they just hit pause. And they told the UK, look, figure out what your relationship is with the EU. Once you have that worked out, come back. We'll talk about what we need to negotiate. But in the meantime, I think the Canadians just didn't see a lot of urgency uh, in continuing to negotiate bilaterally with the British. 
That moment, the Canadian saying, whoa there, stop the bus, <laughs> that probably wasn't that fun for the British. Um, and, and that moment really marks a change in their strategy. Which brings us on to the list that they published on May 19th. Uh, so this isn't the no-deal tariff schedule anymore, but the real global tariff schedule. The global tariff. In this time, there, there was a public consultation process. So w- well done. And in some respects, they came up with some tariffs that look like they are you know, somewhat in line with, with economic theory. And so they did propose lowering tariffs on inputs, and they cited evidence that, in particular, small and medium-sized companies would, would benefit from that, and that lower tariffs on inputs were associated with increased exports, and that those parts could then be used to make finished goods for exports. So they recognized the economic relationships there. And they also proposed removing tariffs completely on products where there were zero or or not much production at all in the UK. There is already a a tariff suspension list where the UK suspends tariffs on goods that aren't sufficiently available in the EU market. And so those tariffs would be based on that list. The government proposed a few other changes to the, the EU tariff schedule that it was basically inheriting. Um, they suggested a few things that could simplify it. Now, obviously, this is kind of hilarious in, a, in an overall process of Brexit that's going to massively um, increase red tape for businesses. But um, let's just taking this tariff schedule in isolation. They proposed removing nuisance tariffs, which they defined as a, a tariff of 2.5% or less. Um, I personally enjoyed the idea that the, the American 2.5% tariff on cars might qualify as a, a nuisance tariff. Um, and the idea is that, you know, a nuisance tariff costs more to collect than than the revenue um, that it generates. Um, and then the other thing they did um, in, in the name of simplification is suggest that instead of having lots and lots of different tariffs, uh, it might be easy to just put the tariffs into bands. And so every tariff, for example, between 15 and 17.5% would be rounded down to 15%, say. In some other cases, the EU's tariff schedule is is really quite complicated. For a number of agricultural products, they can face both ad valorem tariffs, so these are the percentage tariffs, but then also specific duties, so another tariff that is a cash amount per unit that you would buy. And, and other tariffs can be pretty wild. There are ones that vary by season, and so they're higher <laughs> during the summer months than the winter months. There are others that, that are trying to be set so that imports end up having minimum prices, the UK proposed turning some of those into straight percentage ad valorem tariffs. The UK also suggested getting rid of the EU's mercing system, which is this really weird system of calculating tariffs for things like biscuits. So the idea is that instead of setting the tariff by product, you set it by the amount of ingredients in the product. So so the rate is some formula of tariff on flour, butter, and sugar. So, yeah, I mean, it, basically it means that you end up with around 13,000 uh, different tariffs on different types of cake and stuff like that. So the UK government proposed ditching that. And one last thing, and this this really wasn't about simplification, but they did also propose cutting tariffs on environmentally friendly products or, or green goods. So you put all this together and there's there's lots of proposals. They got over 1,300 responses to the public consultations. Broadly, respondents were, were pretty 
much in favor of, of the general gist of what the UK government seemed to be trying to accomplish with this process. And so when on May 19th, the government announced its its global tariff schedule, it's unsurprising that they went for a lot of what they had originally proposed they might do. The government decided to scrap tariffs on around 100 environmentally friendly green goods as proposed. And that includes things like trees, turbine parts, waste containers. So not environmentally friendly, but fine. Cars will actually keep their current tariffs, which according to the government consultation document is to, quote, support the automotive sector in light of broader challenging global market conditions. Uh, I wonder if that's COVID related. Here's Julia on what else they did. So about 40% of the tariff lines have been simplified. Uh, That mostly means that they have been rounded down to the nearest standardised band. Uh, But it also includes some products that had previously faced specific tariffs that now have been converted into simple percentages. So an example of the rounding down can be seen, for example, on suitcases, which under the EU's tariff faced a tariff of 3.7%, but it's been rounded down now to 2%. So one example of uh, one of these specific tariffs that have been simplified is a tariff that under the EU's tariff schedule was 8.3% plus 17 euros per 100 kilos. So it had two different components to it. Under the UK's new tariffs, that product simply faces a tariff of 8%. So that is a way of making it a bit easier to understand. It doesn't affect all the specific tariffs by any means, it affects about 10% of all the non-ad valorem tariffs. Okay, so the government could have gone a bit further if it had wanted maybe on this simplification drive. On those other simplification things, it also was a bit more cautious than what it had set out initially. Maybe 2.5% is high enough for people to care. And so only tariffs below 2% got cut. Those are those nuisance tariffs. And on the other simplification proposal they had um, to put the tariffs into bans, um, the government was actually also a bit more cautious than what they had initially proposed. So they had proposed essentially bans of 2.5% between 10 and 20%. So a 19.5% tariff would be rounded down um, to 17.5%. Now, obviously, the wider the band, the bigger the potential tariff cut for products near the upper limit of the band. Um, And so what the government did is it said, we're not so sure about those kind of super wide 2.5% tariff bands. We're going to have a 2% tariff band. And so the 19.5% tariff would only be rounded down to 18%. So it basically turns out that simplification means uh, even numbers. This decision has come in for some criticism from, from various observers, Uh, Julia wrote a blog with some colleagues at the UK Trade Policy Observatory in which they said the the point of using these tariff bans is actually to uh, make it harder for companies to lobby for their own special higher tariff. And so, you know, really what you want is wide bans um, so that when a a company says, hey, we want this 0.5% advantage over our competitor, the government says, no, sorry, these are the bans you know, we're not, we're not giving you those, those kinds of preferences. Um, and so the criticism was that bans of, of 2% are really not going to be very effective um, in strengthening the government's hand when it comes to denying companies tariffs. So that's tariff simplification. On the issue of cutting tariffs for intermediates, so intermediate inputs, the government could also maybe have 
gone a little bit farther than they did. Here's Julia again. So overall, out of the products that we can identify as intermediates, about half of them still have tariffs applied on them. Now, you can see some examples of theory working in practice. The ceramics industry, which is very worried about foreign competition, they did get a tariff, which they didn't get earlier as part of the the no-deal tariff list. And agriculture got more protection in this list than they did in the earlier one, too. We asked Julia how radical she thought this global tariff was. Well, overall, it's less radical than the no-deal tariffs, but it's still a pretty big change. So around 66% of tariff lines have been changed to some extent. And we estimate that if we exclude the specific tariffs, under the UK's new tariff schedule, the weighted average tariff would fall from around 2.1% to 1.5%. Big picture, the the structure of this more recent tariff schedule is, in a number of ways, quite different from the earlier no-deal tariffs. There, the baseline was, was basically zero, and there had to be a good reason to protect a particular product. And with this later one, the baseline was essentially the EU's tariff schedule, with changes being justified for either reasons of simplification or some other economic or strategic rationale. Let's go on to the, the strategic reasons then why, why you w- might want to keep some, some tariffs high. And so the, the first is that the UK wants to maintain its trade preferences for, for some developing countries. Um, and so you, you can see this in the list um, on things like bananas or, or cane sugar. And they have been protected pretty explicitly with the objective of helping the poorest countries actually sort of maintain their access into the the UK market. The fear is that if you just cut those tariffs to zero, then they'd get outcompeted by the giants of the world um, and they'd they'd stop benefiting from from trade preferences as part of, of things like the GSP program. Separately, obviously, you might also want to keep tariffs high so that a trading partner will compensate you to bring them down. Here is James. So the the priority in the new tariff schedule is, is clearly much more oriented towards getting a good deal with countries with which the UK is negotiating. So in the first place, the EU, but also the US and to a lesser extent, Japan, Australia and New Zealand. This is very visible in in some of the odder aspects of the tariff schedule, particularly if you look at food. So we can see this if we think about oranges. The UK has got quite a high bound tariff on oranges because the EU does, because it grows a lot of oranges in southern Spain. In the no-deal tariff schedule, there is no tariff on oranges at all. The UK doesn't produce oranges. There is no domestic industry to protect. And so the tariff is cut to zero. In the new tariff schedule, there is a tariff on oranges. And to make matters odder, it's actually a seasonal tariff on oranges. So it's higher in the winter than it is in the summer. The reason for this, of course, is that Spain produces oranges in the winter and not in the summer. Now, unless we assume that this tariff is completely accidental and no one's thought about it, then the only reason to have such a tariff would be because you want to trade it away subsequently with either Spain or the people representing Florida and California in return for something else. Again, if you take cherries, uh, sorry to concentrate on the fruit, but if you look at cherries, you find something even odder. Once again, for cherries, we have a seasonal tariff. Now, the UK does grow cherries, a very small quantity of them, but the tariff has been set to the wrong season. So the tariff on cherries is set to be highest in the winter and lowest in the summer. So in other words, it corresponds to when Spain is growing cherries and not when England is growing cherries. 
So I think we can see from this that the tariff is clearly not protecting the English industry. It's there to create incentives for the representatives of the Spanish industry to come to the table. I guess we'll have to wait and see whether trading partners come rushing to negotiate with the UK. I I think from the EU standpoint, I'm skeptical that this is going to be the thing that persuades them to to make big new concessions. I'm sure we'll, we'll return to this soon, but the differences between the two sides at the moment seem really pretty massive. Obviously, the, the UK has trading partners other than the EU. Uh, and so we asked Janice what the Canadian government's reaction was to this new list. So when the British came out with their new list last week, I, I wouldn't describe the situation in Ottawa as panic. They they frame it as they're kind of monitoring how the British are doing. They still want them to work out their arrangements with the EU first before they actually get around to finalizing anything bilaterally with Canada. But the funny thing about the new list that Britain's come out with, when you look at Canada's most important exports to the UK, the top kind of 25 products by value, none of them are really hit with tariffs on Britain's new list. So from the Canadian perspective, what is the dire urgency in getting a bilateral deal done by the end of the year? There there, there isn't one. So, you know, even just this week in the House of Commons, the trade minister was asked, are we going to get a deal by the end of the year? And Mary Ying's answer still was, we're monitoring it. We're keeping a close eye on how things are going, but very non-committal. And I think the reason why is that it wouldn't be that huge a problem for Canada to not have that bilateral deal in place by the end of the year. I think it's fair to say that these tariffs will will certainly generate more leverage with trading partners than under the, the first no-deal schedule. But I also think that other obstacles remaining out there are, are still pretty important. So now let's talk about criticisms of this tariff schedule. And, and the main ones essentially boil down to, you, know, you said you wanted to simplify things, but in the process, you've actually generated new complexities. And it's not clear that the benefits are so great that they outweigh the costs. The first additional complication introduced by this new global tariff involves trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And we we really need to do an entire episode about this. But basically, the UK has agreed to a special arrangement for Northern Ireland so there doesn't have to be physical borders between it and the Republic of Ireland, the the rest of the island. And that's obviously very, very important for for just general peace and, and harmony. But for trade, what that means is wherever tariffs between the UK and the EU are different, there's going to be incentives to to do weird things. And especially for any products where tariffs are lower for the UK than they are for the EU, there's going to be an incentive to import something into Northern Ireland in order to pay the lower tariff and then move that product into the Republic of Ireland. When doing this deal, the EU negotiators were obviously very aware of this this potential problem. And so they made an agreement whereby if a product was at risk of being moved to the EU uh, through Northern Ireland, and the the at-risk is a sort of technical term, these at-risk products would face the higher EU tariff when they were imported into Northern Ireland. That would be the default, not the lower UK one. 
And so essentially what this simplification has done by creating a bunch of products that now have a different tariff between the EU and the UK is it's it's created a lot of products that could now be deemed to be at risk. The UK government does seem to have a plan for this. Here's James. Well, first of all, the UK government is pursuing a very restrictive definition of the notion of goods at risk. So the exact criteria for determining whether a good is at risk or not still have to be laid down by the EU-UK Joint Committee. And the UK is going to adopt a very restrictive position in the committee when they're determining those criteria. The second reason is that the UK is planning to take full advantage of the provisions in the withdrawal agreement in Article uh, 5.6, I think, of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which allow it to reimburse the EU duties that it has been obliged to charge on goods being imported, provided it doesn't exceed EU limits on state aid. Uh, and so it, its plan looks set to be to charge those duties, but then subsequently either waive the debt that the importer has incurred to the customs authority, or just to refund the money that it's already paid out. So charge the tariffs, then get reimbursed. Sounds super, super simple. The other big problem that tariff differences between the UK and and the EU creates goes back to one of my favorites, rules of origin. Basically, rules of origin exist because you're worried that some other country is going to take advantage of, of trade preferences that they didn't negotiate. So suppose the EU has tariffs of 100% on some car part, and the UK also has tariffs of 100%. Then the EU isn't so worried about allowing non-UK content into a car to to enter into the EU tariff-free because it's facing the same tariff it would face if it had come in directly into the EU. But now suppose the UK drops its tariffs to zero. So now the EU is worried, right? There's this big incentive to import first into the UK and then into the EU through the trade deal. And so with these big tariff differences, the EU is going to have to be much tougher about rules of origin. Um, And that that could really complicate discussions with the EU. Um, Rules of origin are, are not the easiest things to negotiate, even at the best of times. Okay, final big hot take on what the UK is is doing here with its global tariffs. To me, looking at this from from Washington, it actually looks somewhat reasonable. Uh, Take this idea of of the UK actually cutting tariffs on parts and components to make sure that their companies can get access to the inputs that they need to stay involved in global supply chains. That's a bit of a foreign concept in in other countries at, at the moment, especially here in the United States. You know, think about what the Trump administration did for for the NAFTA negotiations, the restrictive rules of origin that they had for automobiles in the trade war with with China. The, the tariffs are mainly hitting inputs. You know, this this goal seemingly of decoupling and, and moving supply chains back to the United States. So I think for for bucking that trend, I say to the UK, well done. Yeah, I mean. The UK is doing some other things to to rip itself out of the supply chains that it is involved in. So we should also bear in mind that that kind of wider Brexit context. Um, I guess my final hot take is, you know, one that others others have made, which is that this might not be the last word when it comes to a tariff schedule, right? This this tariff schedule clearly assumes that there will be a trade deal with the EU, right? James pointed out that in having, you know, a super high tariff on beef, 
where the UK imports 35% of its beef from the EU is probably not sustainable in, in the event of, of the UK leaving the transition period without a free trade deal. You know, others, others have also put numbers to this. Um, Dmitry Grozubinsky, who is a trade consultant at Explain Trade and also a kind of master of Twitter, he calculated that under the new tariff schedule, 85% of food imports from the EU would face tariffs of over 5% or new specific duties. That's almost 40% of, of all agricultural produce in the UK. That's a lot. And so, so who knows, maybe at some point we'll have another tariff schedule to, to talk about. Uh, and on that note, I think we should end. That is all for Trade Talks. Um, thank you so much to James Kane of the Institute for Government, Janice McGregor of CBC News, and Julia Magnan-Garrett of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Thanks as always to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores. At trade underscore underscore talks. Because two ways of pronouncing schedule or schedule are better than one. And I haven't I haven't really decided which one I'm using, but I'm just going to alternate at random. Keep you on your toes. It's schedule. What are you talking about? Or schedule. Who knows? <laughs>